0: Well last week I released an episode on Passover. This week I sit down and have a conversation with Justin Frankham on the Savior's Atonement. In this conversation Justin and I recount and dive into the last week of the Savior's mortal ministry, his suffering in the garden, his crucifixion, his triumphant resurrection. We then do a deep dive on how the celebration of the Savior's Atonement was infiltrated by pagan celebrations. And we wrap up by talking about what we can do to take these important religious celebrations back. And that's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. The DNC is perhaps one of the most unique books in all of religious scripture. We hear the voice of the Lord so clearly in it. It allows us to jump back in time and see the progression of Mormon theology. However, sometimes we're still left with questions as we try to consider and get in the minds of those early leaders as we read these revelations. Well, to help us with that and get back to the original intent, Drew Briney's latest project, the annotated version of the Doctrine and Covenants, will be an invaluable tool. With this version, you'll be able to see the original as well as current versions of the revelations. With each revelation, you will also be able to see what those early church leaders thought on the principles of each revelation. Now, whether you're seeking to gain greater insights into the Doctrine and Covenants, or you're just a church history buff, this annotated version of the Doctrine and Covenants is a must-have. Click the link in this episode page to find out how you can get your hands on a copy today. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Justin my man welcome back dude how's things been
1: hey Dave um it's been great it's been great a lot of stuff going on here in Missouri and just getting
0: stuff settled here on my homestead nice nice everything going good as far as homesteading that thing
1: oh yeah yeah it's going good I mean the weather was 80 here
0: you know what just be quiet about that here in Utah it's it it like well you know you were kind of raised here right you get it but, dude, we just keep getting, like, not a little bits of snow either, like, feet of snow all the time, and it won't stop. It it teases you. Like, we got probably eight inches at my place uh, over Monday and Tuesday, and then next Tuesday it's supposed to be 72. So all we're doing is setting up for flooding. So,
1: mm-hmm. Well, but, happy Ishtar.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> that's right. I suppose you haven't been to the temple prostitutes enough.
0: No, probably not. That's probably part of it is that uh, that that I haven't paid my my dues to the to the Babylonian gods is probably what happened. But no, what happened was we were all praying for moisture and he's like, "Okay, here it comes. So get ready. But anyway. Well, man, we're going to have a great conversation. We we talked a little bit off air last weekend about doing this. And we I just recently covered Passover with with Joshua. And now we're going to focus on really, you know, the the accounts out of the New Testament of, of Jesus' atonement and sacrifice and then what that means to us. And I think, you know, I can't think of a better guy to have on to help me out with that than than you. So let's get into it, man. What What sticks out to you about this whole thing?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I love the topic of the atonement, and um, it's really been something that's been kind of primary in my focus on scriptures and stuff like that ever since my mission, and I was really actually fortunate to have a mission president that um, he really stuck me with some great questions that have followed me throughout my life and I think there's nothing better than a great question to ponder and to really get the mind activated I mean if you look at most of Joseph Smith's revelations they're they're founded upon questions and I think that you know asking questions is one of the one of the greatest things we can do so I've actually I've got a question for you Dave yeah this is a a a kind of a question that got posed to me by my mission president okay okay he was explaining that when he was on his mission, he had a companion and this companion of his told him on no uncertain terms that to truly appreciate the atonement of Jesus Christ, you have to have repented from a serious transgression. Now my mission president told me that he was kind of of the opinion that, that uh, this elder knew that from firsthand experience, but it really raises a really, to me, a really great question. Do you need to have, egregious sin in your life that you've repented of to truly have a a deep understanding and appreciation of the atonement what do you think of that
0: so i'm just going to speak from personal experience on this one when i first was exploring mormonism not even fundamentalism just you know i was i was taking the discussions with the with the elders there uh to to join the lds church and as we were going down, just the basic things, right? And this was back in like '95, so you still have the the series of six discussions, and you get a pamphlet and a Book of Mormon, you know, uh, missionary version, and then you have reading assignments. And oh, that was my mission. Okay, as as I start getting into it, right, and and we start going through all these, I go ahead and I just start reading more on my own, and all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, most of the don't, the stuff they say are don'ts in here. I do on a regular basis. And some of them were, you know, there were definitely, you know, um, like chastity kind of things that that I had um, violated before I was a Mormon at all. And um, once I started to really think about those things, I became more appreciative of the Savior and what He did because I realized I'm kind of a dirtbag, right? I had to have that very uncomfortable conversation of, yeah, I'm a dirtbag. And that led to a lot of things abuse of alcohol, um, harder drugs, those sorts of things. And I remember standing in the font and just telling God, I'll follow, and this was probably how I ended up fundamentalism, a fundamentalist too, as I said, I'll follow this out to its logical conclusion, whatever that is. Wherever you are, that's what I, where I want to be, and I'll do whatever it is you ask me to do. I just don't ever want to have to feel like I have felt for the past five years. Now, let me say this. There have been times that I have had to repent of sins that maybe aren't that grievous, Right. Maybe I've offended someone and and maybe I didn't even mean to, but I still felt horrible about it. So the thing I'll say is, as you grow closer to the Savior and your discipleship, even the little sins can feel overwhelming at times. So this idea that you have to have this, you know, grievous sin to come back from, I don't think so, because I don't think for God, there's a whole lot of difference in in most sins, right? A sin is a sin is a sin. Obviously, there are some that are bigger in nature because of the impact they have on other people. But if we're not offending somebody else, we're probably offending God. And when you think about that, that makes it huge in and of itself. I know that was a long answer to a short question.
1: Well, it's a good answer. It's a a deep question, really, I think, because the premise of it on on at surface value i mean my initial on my mission at that time my kind of gut reaction was well that's ridiculous because uh you know it's better not to sin and so wh- how could somebody who has lived a life in sin get this reward of, of a, a greater appreciation and connection to the atonement in christ because of that but that was kind of my my kind of gut reaction, you know, and not to go into details, but you know, I, I ran into some issues after my mission. And I had some experiences. I wouldn't necessarily say grievous sins, but I don't know. maybe maybe you would call them grievous sins. And it was really actually after some of those experiences that even for myself, I truly gained a much, much deeper appreciation of the atonement. It was it may, it means so much more to me now than before and so there does seem to be something to that um um a friend of mine brought up that uh that one of the one of christ's parables talks about the debtor that you know owed owed uh, a little and then the debtor that owed a lot and the debtor that owed a lot how much how much more appreciative is he when when his debt was forgiven him right so and the other interesting thing is like i because the, the downside of this is if you buy into that kind of an idea that that sin will lead to a greater appreciation of the atonement, that might lead to this idea of, well, then go and commit some grievous sin, right? And I, I'm not trying to promote that at all, but a lot of the people that I know who are really, really hardcore in their faith and dependence on Christ really have gone through a kind of a, a, a Saul-like transformation in their lives and that seems to be pretty much undeniable. I mean, I don't know for sure if it's if it's actually truly required, but I I personally don't know anybody that hasn't really struggled and well, been in that kind of darkness to really be able to who who truly truly really deeply appreciates the light of Christ.
0: Well, I I'll, I'll say this, right? Is one, I think all sin, no matter what it is, I think has that ability to separate you from God, right? And so the outcomes are the same, whether it's fornication or if it's just speaking ill of another, you know, I, I think that that you know the outcomes can be pretty much the same. Now, we do know that there are degrees of glory for a reason, right? Um, so obviously, some sins are more, more grievous than others however i think if it results in the separation of you from god i think it's it's grievous no matter what as far as people who have that kind of sol of tarsus moment i'll say this for me i again and and i'm pretty uh i'm pretty pr- black and white when it comes when it comes to to my religion in a lot of ways um I, I am pretty nuanced on some things, but a lot of it's black and white for me. And there's times where and and I felt this coming out of the font, I felt this coming into fundamentalism. I feel it today that you know what i I owe God something, right? And I'll never be able to pay it back. I don't want anyone to think that 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 we have this ability to pay it back. But there is a certain amount of of wanting to push forth some sort of token saying, I tried, I did the best I could. And so I think maybe some of that where where you find people who've had those those moments where where there's been a drastic change and a drastic conversion, I think sometimes can be like, Yeah, I gotta, I gotta start paying it forward here a little bit.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I think a lot of it actually. So, you're right. Whether it's a egregious sin or some minor thing, all of those things separate us from God. They all have the same spiritual death. Um, but not all of them have the same kind of immediate consequences, right? And I think right. it's really some of these, some sins have immediate or more present grievous consequences. And that's really what we're talking about. I think right. when we're thinking about grievous sin is is the one where you you know immediately like wow that's that was really really bad you really end up in that in that place of recognizing how how damaging that was and i think you're right even small sin you know speaking bad about somebody behind their back you know maybe that's not a grievous sin um if that leads to some rumors going around and and leads to um you know, some gossip, which leads to bullying, which might lead somebody into despair and maybe suicidal thoughts or something like that. I mean, we don't really know the, conse- the you know the consequences of, of our actions. And so I think really what it is, we need to have committed a, gr- a grievous sin to appreciate the atonement. I think what we need to do is we need to recognize the grievousness of our sins to appreciate the atonement.
0: I like that. Yeah, no, I I think that's definitely the case. I like that. Recognize the grievousness of our sins. Because you're right. Some things, it and what, I don't know if this is necessarily doctrinally correct, and I, I won't ever pretend to, to say it is. I've told everybody on this podcast, I'm not your bishop, I'm not your priest, I'm not your rabbi, I'm not your stake president, I'm not your prophet. I'm just a dude with a microphone. But, I'll I'll say this, I've always kind of gauged how bad a sin is by how badly it affects another, right? So let's say you're in the car and someone cuts you off in traffic and you, you know, have a little bit of contempt in your heart, right? That's not necessarily healthy, but the impact on anybody else but yourself and your relationship with God is, is, you know, fairly minimal. Now you go out and you screw around on your wife. now you've got now you've hurt yourself, you've hurt God. you've broken a covenant, you've broke your wife's heart, and we find out in Jacob that that's huge. God counts those tears. You've wounded your children. You don't know what the effect on everyone's testimony that's going to be down the road. So I tend to think that um that sometimes the the grievousness of sins can can really be dependent upon what you do and how badly you hurt another. If we look at just the Ten Commandments, primarily, with the exception of things like the Sabbath day and, you know, idol worship, it all has to do with how it affects other people, right? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. You don't want to destroy a marriage. You know, don't, don't murder don't take the life of another don't take from somebody else so it's really about how we are interacting with everybody else and i think that plays into a large part of of just how grievous the sin is
1: well that's a great point about the road rage actually because that seems like a small thing but the actual i mean so this is something i'm actually i've tried i've tried to work on with myself because i noticed that well back when i lived in utah you know how Utah drivers are.
0: So, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I live in this state. We gotta be quiet. So okay. <laughs> no, All I'm right. Just, yeah. I'm I'm yeah, just Utah
1: kidding. Utah drivers are fantastic, except it's uh, those California drivers. It's it's the Yeah, it must be the Californians. Yeah. They don't know how to drive out there. Um and so that Californian cuts you off and and you get pissed, but that happens like three or four times when you just go into the store and you get back from the store and you're still pissed because you're angry right. and you start interacting with your wife you start interacting with your children or possibly even god forbid you get really pissed off while you're driving and then you do something stupid you get in a car accident you get you hurt injure somebody else injure your own family you get people killed i mean the potential consequences even of just getting pissed off for getting cut off can be huge
0: yeah
1: and I, you know and so i think that the it's, lo- it's losing control of yourself, right? That's really kind of what that anger is. That you're losing control of yourself, you're not making sound judgment. And anytime you're in that kind of a situation, like I don't think there's anything inherently evil about alcohol, but you put yourself in a state where, um, where you're inebriated, and all of a sudden you could do some serious, serious damage to your life and other people's lives. And that's why I think that's there's such a, a fine line between the morality and immorality of of drinking and things
0: yeah yeah and, and and i always go to the default of if it separates me from god it's something that has to be rectified
1: yeah absolutely so um you know i was kind of curious when we we're talking off air beforehand last week um we we're talking a little bit about it, the worship of ishtar yeah and um i'm kind of curious if you wanted to
0: Yeah, let's go
1: into that a little
0: bit. Let's let's dive into that. But maybe before we do, I would like to give maybe an overview of what it was the Savior had to endure for the atonement first. Because I want to set that table. And then after that, let's go into how that act had been basically stolen by Ishtar. Cause I find that fascinating. I think that's been more, I think the celebration of Christ's atonement has been more bastardized than even Christmas on a large scale. Because it 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 has just overarching consequences if we don't realize just how important that is. So that's that's where I'd like to start if you're good with that. No, that'd be great. So, for me, I think when we start talking about the process of the atonement and the events leading up to it, there there's a couple things that really jump out to me that that I found fascinating as I was reading the account again this week. And one was, and and it seems kind of of uh, almost a side note sometimes. And that's when Christ is taken by Pilate before the people of Jerusalem who are gathered there. Now, here's something else to think about, right? Christ, just a few days before, rides into Jerusalem triumphant, right? There are people who are like here we go, you know, the, he's going to kick the Romans out, and he's going to do all these things, and we're going to usher in this this millennial reign, and it's going to be all good, and and Jesus is going to get it done. Well, we know from Scripture that Christ was betrayed. He was taken to pot, to uh, uh, Caiaphas first, if I'm not mistaken, it was Caiaphas, and Caiaphas was like, you know what, take him to the Romans. And so, and, and along the way, he's getting beat up pretty good, right? He's getting slapped. He's getting harassed. And so he finally makes his way to pilot. And you could tell pilot's got some apprehension. His wife has had some premonitions, you know, hey, don't do this. You know, I've had a dream. And, and so pilot's kind of, you almost get this feeling like pilot's trying to find a way out. He has this idea. I'll just take him out and I will give the people their choice. They can either have Barabbas or they can have Jesus, right, as is the custom. Now, when you study Josephus a little bit, when you, when you look at some historical sources and some oral traditions, they say Barabbas was a murderer. But what you don't get is that he was a zealot, which meant that he was one of the ones trying to kick Rome out. And so when they take Jesus and they present him to the crowd, you in the crowd cries for Barabbas, it's because the people are politically angry, which I think is a huge thing, especially in today's day and age, right? Because look, I, I'll admit, I didn't vote for Donald Trump the first time around, I did the second time. I didn't trust him, I didn't think he was a constitutionalist, I didn't think he was measured enough. I had concerns, I was wrong. I'll be the first guy on here to admit I was wrong. The thing that scared me about Trump is that he appealed to people's anger. And every time in history, we've seen a political leader appeal to somebody's anger. It turns out way bad, right? And it did this time, right? They gave the citizens their choice. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And by now they're like, well, Jesus is in Roman custody. He's obviously not the guy give us barabbas so sometimes I think we're really quick to allow some of those political divisions to creep into our spiritual lives and I think that's something that we have to be very careful of
1: that's kind of a, a timely analogy with uh Trump getting uh indicted and all that
0: right exactly
1: yeah <laughs> today would we uh do we want Trump or would we want Christ
0: yeah yeah well and and, and I'm not saying Trump was a was a bad guy, right? You know, he he didn't take the same covenants that guys like you and I took, right? Um, But nonetheless, I won't pretend to judge the guy, right? During his presidency, I think he did some good things. I think he did some bad things. I think he was like every other president in some ways. Um, I do think he scared the establishment to death, and that's why they are working so hard against him right now. But do we... If if we allow ourselves to be swept up in a moment of anger, what would we do? What could we be party to? And so I think this part of, of Christ's uh, passion, if you will, to borrow from the Catholics a little bit, um, is very telling about the human condition.
1: Yeah, well, the, we, the desire for immediate um, restitution. You yeah, know, they wanted some immediate results, and and that's I and and this also this even then like they were looking they weren't looking for a, a spiritual savior they were no. looking for a political savior they they kind of had that wrong, right? And in a kind of an inverse way today though, you know, I, I kind of agree with you on Trump for the most part, but where we're at now with him, what kind of bothers me is there seems to be a a cult around him that seems to be this idea that will you know, he's this outlet for this anger and this rage, and as justified as maybe the abuses that this country has received recently may be, I don't think ultimately that's really we're not we're not going to find salvation in Trump. This no, not he's not Cheeto Jesus.
0: No, no, and and the other thing I'll say is that if you look at the American Revolution. We got right spiritually first before we did anything, any fighting, right? You had had leaders telling you, you better go to church. You better pray for the protection of divine providence. We had better engage in days of fasting and humiliation to stay humble because we're going to need God for this. And in your anger, you're typically not looking for God all the time. Right in your anger, you're like, screw this, I'm going to take care of this myself. And usually that's when things go downhill very quickly.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, um, and if at any point here you want to jump in, just jump in. So, th- the other thing that I wanted to focus on was Peter, because Peter gives me so much hope, right? When Jesus says, you know, where I'm going, you can't go. And Peter's like, dude, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to, I'm going to ride or die with you. And then he's like, no, you're not. Because before this night's over, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter, I'm sure Peter was like, no way. I'm your, I'm your boy. You know, we're not going to go. You're not going to go through this alone. We're going to make sure that, that you're okay. And sure enough, he ends up doing it, but yet he still is used as a tool for God. And again, I think that's us a lot. I think as humans, because of the human condition, we can run hot and cold a lot.
1: Absolutely. And honestly, to me, that's a pivotal moment in Peter's ministry when he realizes that, I mean, we're just talking about grievous sins and appreciation for the atonement. I think that was, that was a a huge one for Peter and the, The fact really drove it home that Peter realized, "Oh my gosh, wow! This is this is what I am. Without Christ, I'm I'm nothing. And without relying upon Christ in the future, obviously he he would have remained nothing. But obviously he didn't do that because he he learned his lesson from that experience. And that experience, even even the experience of him denying Christ through the atonement, actually cemented." his conviction, and his dedication as a disciple of
0: Christ. Right. Right. You know, the, the other one that gets me is when Jesus is suffering in the garden. Right. And this is the first time we see a Savior who's truly in distress, who just wants his friends to stay awake while he goes and does this and they just can't stay awake. And there's a lot of symbolism in that.
1: Oh yeah, well, uh, one of the interesting things to me uh, in the re- the restoration scripture brings forth this idea of the of Christ and the bitter cup. Right. And if you've ever drank anything really bitter before, it's not just a- an issue of I don't want to do this. There's almost like a physiological incapacity to your body just will try to prevent you it just no uh uh-uh not not happening and to me that symbolically it's it's very very poignant to describe the atonement that way because i i think it christ in spirit was willing absolutely but i don't think Maybe going into that, he quite understood the depths of that suffering, right? And I think absolutely he had to white knuckle his way through that. Yeah, it was. It was even for for Christ. to let, let's not forget too, Christ wasn't just a mortal man. He was, he was the uh, literal son of, of the Father. He was deity incarnate. He was half God. And even for him to to want to shirk away from that, right? I mean, it just really, really drives home the sacrifice that he made and the things that he was willing to do for us, do for me.
0: You know, yeah. And as far as those apostles who just could not stay awake... Oftentimes there there's times I'll look at the news or I'll look at what's happening within Mormonism and I want to throw my hands up. I'm like I don't want to do this anymore. It's not making an impact. I'm done. I'm gonna go downstairs. I'm gonna turn on football. I'm gonna grab a bag of Doritos and I'm done. Right? Screw this. I think that's the equivalent of going to sleep now, right? And and we hear this a lot from people is. I'm just going to disengage. And look, I I think I think it's a clever trick, right? Because we 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 sometimes look at disengagement as a means of safety. And maybe on some level it could be. But the problem doesn't get resolved with disengagement. And so there's this idea of being awake, not woke, awake, and being able to to identify what's happening and understand the significance of it, right? Like if there, if an angel had came down and, and told them, hey, you're going to want to pay attention to this because this is the pivotal moment in all of human history, right here, right in this little garden, 20 yards away from you. You're going to want to see this. I think they'd have been wired, right? But because you get the sense that, you know, they were just worn down. Um, you know, these are men who traveled with the savior extensively watched him do miracles and and you know dealt with the throngs of people and so you you get the sense that maybe they were just worn down and i think we're all in that stage but i don't think we can use as an excuse to go to sleep
1: well yeah and it's interesting thinking about sleep how intoxicating it can be sometimes like i mean i've got little kids and you know i wake up in the middle of the night and it can be so hard to pull yourself out of that drowsiness sometimes it's kind of be like the house is on fire or kids screaming bloody murder otherwise leave me be i'm tired you know
0: right right yeah and, and the other thing is is that if we're not awake we can't bear testimony of what happened right think about the the kind of testimony they could have bore had they saw it had they saw him sweat blood, right? What what kind of words would they have used? If we're not awake, if we're not engaged, it's pretty hard to testify to others because when we tend to disengage today, we don't want to talk to anybody else. At least I don't. Again, I want to turn on football and eat Doritos. That's my my go-to method of operation. Um, But if we're awake... we're engaged, we can bear testimony of the Savior. So I found that very interesting as well.
1: Yeah, that's a great analogy. I like that.
0: And then the Savior says something in the garden that I know we all talk about a little bit, but I, I really want to talk about this for a second. And that is, I, I think at this point, things are getting real, and, and the Savior can feel the weight beginning to press on him. And he said, let this cup pass. Please, Father, let this cup pass. But your will be done. In that moment, the Savior surrenders his ultimate will to his Father. Knowing full well what's about to transpire. God will intercede in many, many things. But the one thing he'll never touch is our agency. That's for us to choose with. And if he violates that, I think it's one of those eternal laws. He'd cease to be God. How do we get to a point to where we can offer our will up to the Father in a similar fashion as the Savior did? Because I think that's really the only thing we can give him, right?
1: Well, yeah, that's the you know the King Benjamin address. There you have uh, people that are taught about the, their coming Savior. Or not king, king, uh no, yeah, King Benjamin in Mosiah, where he teaches the people that they need a savior. You know, he explains, even me, I'm your king, and you know, I'm just, I'm the dust, I'm I'm less than the dust of the earth. The dust at least obeys God. I mean, us, I mean, us mortals, we don't even do that. So, um, that testimony that he bears to the people about their coming savior causes a a transformation in them where they're basically that's exactly what is they they, they're at that point where they they are willing and desirous to put their hearts put their agency put their will on that altar and and give it all to god and and mark that with a covenant and you know i think that's really a beautiful part in the book of mormon and a beautiful example but you know in our own lives i don't know i there's been times when i have been in well there's been times where i've been in the depth of despair and in a kind of a anti or reverse atonement aspect it's like in that despair anything i anything lord I, I i surrender my agency i'll surrender my will deliver me please because i i can't endure this i can't bear this um that's probably for me been some of the the most transformational experiences has been when i when i was in some of my darkest places and that's not necessarily even necessarily a consequence of sin um well i mean probably ultimately all all of that is but sometimes we experience horrible devastating effects in our lives because of something other people do to us or even sometimes even just natural things happen and you know there's no mal intent no clear rhyme or reason things happen uh, i i lost a loved one last summer, my family, and things happen sometimes that put us in these places where we get opportunities to really decide, what are we going to do? Are we going to just go to sleep? Are we going to just turn to something else and just try to numb our pain? Or are we going to go to God? And in those moments, I think that's when we really clearly hear that still small voice say that what the Lord's asking is he's asking for a a sacrifice of our, of our hearts. He wants our hearts. Yeah. And, and that's,
0: and that can be the toughest, toughest thing to surrender. Right. And, and I remember, I remember my first real time when I had to surrender, right. Which was so, so let me go back because there there's actually a story of how I got to this this place and it's something I fight against still to this day when my old man passed away I was getting I was a freshman in high school and I was getting ready to uh to wrestle for um for qualifiers for state and um my dad had passed away that Tuesday and I was supposed to wrestle Friday night and my coach came to me he came to the house. He said, look, here's the deal. Um, I was able to get a variance. So we will set up a special tournament at a neutral site or a, a special match at a neutral site. So you can wrestle at a different time. And I sat there and I thought about it for a minute. And I went, no, no, I, w- I want to do this right now. You know, I want to do it at its normal time. I want to get this done. And I was going up against a guy who had um, really just kicked my rear all over the mat three times before during the season. And so we get get to the point where the match happens. And I remember it was the strangest thought, and I'm not sure where it came from, but I remember I stepped on the mat and I thought, I've hurt all week long, and I'm not going to hurt today. I can control everything inside of this circle. If I really want to. And I did. But what that did, Justin, is even though I won that match and it gave me a little bit of reprieve, a little reprieve, excuse me, from my pain. It, 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 it kind of put this idea in my head that no matter what the situation is, I'll just, I'll just force it to my will. I'll just bend it to my will. I will just force it to go my way. And in some ways that served me very well, but in other ways it didn't because there's some things that we can't do. We are mortal. We cannot affect certain things. And when we get in that stage, it's a form of pride, right? And I recognize that in myself now is that that was a very prideful attitude to take. Um, and so, we get to a point to where I think all of us who, who, who are trying to be disciples of Christ, we've got to get to that point to where we're willing to just be like, you know what, I've tried it my way, this is not working. I remember mine. I remember mine as clear as day, looking in the mirror and realizing, oh, I'm, I'm horrible. I got, I've, I've done horrible things to good people. And in, in this effort to bend everything to my will. And as soon as I was willing to look up into the heavens and tell God, okay, I've screwed this all up. This is all on me. I've done all this. Help me now. I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. You have my undivided attention. I will do whatever it is. And I think we got to get to that point. But the question is, is how do we get there? And then how can we stay there? It's one thing to talk about offering up your will. It's another thing to do it.
1: Well, I I think that's why the Lord directs our lives, to be honest. I think I, I am a firm believer that nothing in life is an accident, nothing is nothing is by chance. All of this is a very, very carefully orchestrated plan to present us with exactly what we need. And no more to be able to truly find out who we are and find out whether we're going to turn to Christ or, or, or what. Um, You know, when I, I got back from my mission and I was just on fire and I was like, all right, I've done my mission. Next step, get married, start a family. And so I went about to do that and time passes and I, I go about to do it some more and time passes and And I just have failed relationship after failed relationship. And I was actually in my thirties. And at this point I have, I had like seen it all. I have been through just about any kind of problematic (laughs) interpersonal relationship, love type situation you could possibly imagine. I, I have made every mistake in the book and I was with, I was traveling with my brother-in-law we stopped at some some of his in-laws to uh uh stop for conference and i'm in my i'm in my 30s now and uh he has a he has this uh this aunt who does this face reading stuff kind of a kind of a parlor trick but um but you know she'll look at your nose and your ears and your eyes and she'll like divine your your personality and character stuff like that and I, you know, I was just there chilling, having fun. And I was like, Oh, sure. Why not? You know, get my, get my tarot card reading. (laughs) (laughs) So she's, she's looking at me. I I can remember something like something about my ears are imbalanced. And that means I'm not a very generous person. I thought, huh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's true. It doesn't, I don't feel that way, but then she really latched onto something and, you know, at the time, part of me's thinking, well, duh, if I'm if I'm a devout woman, I'm I'm thirty one or thirty two, I'm not married yet, obviously, you know there's <laughs> there's trouble there, but she she looked at me and she's like, you are afraid of having a serious of serious relationships and so you sabotage every relationship you're in. and that mm. really stung. It really, really stung. And it really troubled me. And I remember I went to bed that night just in kind of turmoil about this. and this turmoil brought came to a head that next morning, and I just I got up, i I wandered off into the into the desert and uh, found this river, and I just knelt down and i and I was at my limit. I'm like, what is going on? what I don't care what it is. I just want to be fixed. I want to be able to have a family. I want a wife who I can love and who loves me. I want children that I can do my best to raise. These are experiences that are really, really important to me. And I haven't been able to find, I haven't been able to do this. I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe she's right. Maybe I am sabotaging. So I just, in, in probably the most absolute state of humility in my life, I knelt down and I asked God, what is wrong with me? and whatever it is, I will fix it. I will do whatever it takes. Just, I, I, I surrender myself to Thee. if it's, I self-sabotage, then I'll accept that. Just show me how to overcome it. If it's something else, show me what it is. And, but I need, I need help. I can't do this. I can't do this alone. And, you know, I, I had a, a very, very powerful sacred experience with the Lord and I received some understanding of of what I needed. I was willing to surrender anything, you know, even even these dreams and these ideas of having a family if need be. If that wasn't my lot in life, if the Lord said, Hey, um, it hasn't happened because I need you to be some kind of a celibate monk, okay. If that's what if that's my plan, if that's your plan for me in this life, I'll take it. But I, I need some resolution here, right? <laughs> and I got I got some resolution. And I mean, it was literally. No more than two months after that experience, I think two months, maybe three months, and I was married. But it didn't really happen until I finally complete in complete abject utter humility, in absolute nakedness, prostrated myself before God and just said, "Help me, please help me. I need help. I can't. I can't do this. I. I, I can't do this on my own."
0: You know, I think. I think God loves broken people a lot because I think they're people he can work with. Um, I think when everything's going good, we have a tendency to get real fat and happy, right? We, we, we get real complacent real quickly and in a state of brokenness, we can tend to, we tend to go seeking for answers, and we tend to go looking for God in those moments, and oftentimes that's where he, that's, that's when we were finally ready to meet him on his terms, right, is when we've become broken. Um, he, even Joseph Smith, right, I mean, this is a young man who is tormented in his soul about his brother Alvin, about which church he should join, about, you know, what's going to happen to his family. This is a kid who's who's feeling this weight and somewhat, I would say probably a little broken in some ways. And as he kneels down, I mean, that's the beginning of it. I also find it interesting that it seems to be the darkest moments that light really bursts forth. I mean, and and we'll cover the savior's experience on this here in a second, but let's talk about Joseph Smith for a moment. Joseph Smith's darkest time One of his darkest times is just moments preceding the bursting forth of heavenly light and having a theophany that would change, certainly Christendom forever, if not the entire religious world. So our darkest moments can can become our our salvation in some way right our, our that that a powerful time of change
1: oh absolutely the prophets of old abraham
0: the darkest right. moment of
1: his life as he's heading up that mountain with isaac yeah and uh and it, i and I, I firmly believe that it was from that experience that he received all of those blessings and covenants from the lord it was because he went through that that he received that um, moses um in the book of Moses you know where we know that he he sees God and then the devil comes and in that struggle afterwards um the Lord returns to him again and he has this grand vision and sees the end from the beginning and just that whole amazing thing I mean there's just so many accounts of of a, a darkness kind of preceding a light uh, Jonah and the whale even right. Yeah. <laughs> he's running away from God. He's, uh, he's not, he's, he's going to do his own will. And, and then, you know, he's, he spends some time on those stormy seas and, and then in the, in the great fish. And after that, he's, he's ready to surrender his will to God and see what God has to do. And that was a hard thing for Jonah to, to do as well. he needs to be understood that the Nivenites were, were terrible, terrible people um, can horrible atrocities on the Israelite people. Yeah. So it was not an easy thing to go preach repentance to your, your great gravest enemy. That would be like, you know, imagine getting called to, um, go preach repentance to, you know, the white house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'd be like, no, I don't, want, I don't want those guys to repent. <laughs> I want those guys to go to hell.
0: Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember, So this was before I was a father, like right before, hours before. This is when we were still in the LDS church. And me and my wife got married civilly first because we were just in love and wanted to get married. So we had to do the obligatory, now you got to wait a year kind of thing to, to go through the temple. So I'm like, this is cool. We'll go ahead and we'll spend time. This will be good for us. You know, we can spend time grounding ourselves to the gospel and grounding ourselves to the Lord and we'll work the plan, right? So we, we make sure, I mean, we're Johnny on the spot when it comes to our tithing. We are Johnny on the spot with our church attendance. We are Johnny on the spot with our scripture study and prayers at home and our temple prep class. And about two weeks before we are scheduled to go through the temple, which my wife by now is really pregnant. She's about she's about six and a half months along. And we're like, okay, we're getting close. And then something happens. Her her grandfather dies. And we find out when the funeral is, and we're like, no big deal. We can get up there and back in time to do the session. We'll have, you know, three days to spare. So we go up to Washington State from Idaho we go to the funeral and her mom says, Hey, can you postpone your, your endowment and your ceiling just a couple of days? Because I got to clean up some stuff here from my dad. Right. I gotta, I gotta go through his papers and we got to get all the insurance stuff, all situated. And I was bummed, but I understood. I'm like, yep, yep. You know, whatever. So we go back home, we reschedule. And then, literally the day before we're supposed to go through the temple, my wife starts going into premature labor. And so she wheels, you know, they, we wheel her into the emergency room. They stop the, they stop the contractions, but the doctor comes in. He says, look, she needs to be flat on her back. And I could tell by the old celestial smile under his white shirt that he was a Mormon. And I said, look, here's the deal we are literally a day or so away from going through the temple. And I remember he looked down and he just kind of kicked the floor a little bit. And he said, look, you've never been through, but trust me, there's a lot of standing up and sitting down. And if she go, because this was before some of the changes had taken place. And he says, if you go through there, I promise you you're not going to get through the session. She will be right back here and we will be wheeling her out of the temple. So you're going to have to wait till after the baby's born. And I was devastated, devastated, right? Because I so wanted my child to be born under the covenant. Oh, yeah. And then, but I'm like, it's okay. It's all right. We're, we're going to stay patient. We're going to continue to work this plan. And then as soon as everybody's healthy and strong enough after, after the baby comes, we'll go through the temple. Amber goes into labor and, um, she has the baby and everything seems fine, right? Everything seems fine. Her mom goes in to see Amber and I said, Hey, while your mom's here, I'm going to go check out our son. And so I go in and I start checking on him and, uh, all of a sudden these, these monitors start going off big time. Um, just beeping everywhere where my son's at and the nurses rush in and they kind of push me out of the way doctor comes in listens to him he's like he's got pneumonia we don't have the facilities here in Caldwell to take care of it we need to ship him to Boise okay so I start I start you know I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm watching them work on my son and I got this primal thing going on in my gut that I didn't know I had. Right. When you become a parent, things change drastically. I'm, I, and I'm all of 19 years old, by the way. Right. I'm not, oh, wow. I'm not, I'm, I'm young. <laughs> and, uh, as I'm watching them, this nurse comes up and she's like, I need you back in your, in, in your wife's room right now. She just passed out. And I'm like, what in the hell is happening right now? So I run into my wife's room. And sure enough, they're picking her up off the floor. My mother-in-law is gone. I have no one else there. But my adrenaline is now going hard, right? Hard. And um, I start start really getting worked up. And I call her mom back. We get a hold of her. She's this was 96 so she had a pager so i was able to get a hold of her pager she turns around she comes back and i'm watching them work on my son so so i'd be in the room i'd make sure amber's okay and then i'd jump over and i'd look at my son and make sure he was okay and i was just bouncing everywhere and finally they're like we gotta get your son to boise we're gonna put him in an ambulance and get him there and this is this is late september and uh I'm, I'm talking to my mother-in-law, my wife, and the doctor's looking at my wife. He's like, she's just exhausted is all. And so my wife says, you go, you follow the ambulance. So I'm driving. Oh, excuse me. I'm driving. And it's just a crappy night. I mean, the rain is coming down in sheets. And I'm in the car. And as soon as the door shuts, I look up into the up. up above me. I'm like, you and me are going to have this out right now. Right now. I have done everything you have asked me to do. I have done everything you wanted me to do. Why are you putting me in this position? I don't understand. And I do this for the whole drive. And it's about a half hour drive from Caldwell to downtown Boise where the hospital is. And I mean, I'm keeping up with the ambulance. I'm doing pretty good. And uh, they wheel him in and the nurses start working on him. And um, they get him stabilized. He's resting comfortably. And I'm just there by myself. And there's a little chapel down in St. Luke's Hospital that you can just go and sit in. I'm like, yeah, we're going to go have some more talks because I have not got an answer yet. I have not got an answer yet. And I remember I was... I'm ashamed to admit this. I was very, very arrogant in how I questioned God. What are you doing? What is the plan here? You're going to let my son die without without being sealed to me, and I'm doing everything you're asking me to do. Why? What have I done wrong? And in that moment, it wasn't an audible voice, but it, it they were words that came in my mind with such force that just said, be still and know that I am. And I have your son like I have you right now. And I love him every much as I love you. You're going to get through this, but you have got to slow down so you can learn the lessons. You have been so wrapped up in the checklists that you haven't stopped to think about what they really meant. And so much to my chagrin, I, I realized... Yeah, the Lord was right again. I I've been checking boxes without letting it percolate into my heart. Now, ultimately, I, I'm a fundamentalist, so in the long run, it probably didn't matter a whole bunch. But in that moment, it was it was a crisis that needed resolved right then, and in that moment, was another one of those those pivot points where I realized. Okay, I, I've got to surrender my will here again. I have to I have to I have to go deeper than checking boxes.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Um well and I wouldn't say that it didn't mean anything either. I think it meant a lot. I mean in all of our lives, the things that, that come into it are, are stepping stones and they're you know, these experiences happen to us for our growth. Um but I mean like i would not be the person i am today if i hadn't like been a missionary for the lds church that was fundamental and i'd say existential to to the person that i am today and so i i think those things do mean a lot and i think again that just shows god's mercy for us that he's willing to chastise us that he's willing to put us in those situations that cause us pain because we know another one, of one of the amazing revolution revelations from the restoration is that God cries. Yeah. God fills our sorrows. And as, as, as desperate of a situation that you were in and those experiences that you were in, not, not only father, but Christ, they understood they've, they've been there. They know exactly what it was and they didn't want to. And they, I am sure they did not want to, put you there just like and i don't think they wanted to afflict job or let right. Job be afflicted the way that he was but it was necessary for our growth and that's the beauty of the plan is that is that god will chastise us when we get out of so so to a certain degree i don't know that we need to necessarily go out of our way to look for 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 these things uh, because our thankfully we have a father who when we when we when we fall asleep he comes and he wakes us up yep but, Yep. Better to be awake, obviously better to be awake, but he's patient with us and he gives us those opportunities to, to find out what it is in our hearts that would separate us from him. And he'll give us exactly what we need to, to change that. And all, and the funny thing is no matter what the situation is too, it's just, as you described, the solution is that surrender. It's that surrendering of ourselves to God. And when we surrender ourselves to God, nothing can touch our peace.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it's that surrender surrendering that causes those dark times to suddenly become a light, right? It was in that moment when I was surrendering and crying out to God in a way I had never cried out to him before. Right. And, and I've often wondered what that conversation is going to be like if I'm so fortunate and I, I've done done the right things to meet the Lord you know, what that conversation is going to be like when I see him. And he says, you remember that time when you were all freaked out when your son was being born? Let's talk about that a little bit. But it, it's often that surrender that causes those, those our own personal theophanies, right? Where, where we encounter God. So I, I guess for anyone else listening, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what anyone else is going through. I know it's tough out there, but. If you're in one of those moments, know that you could be moments away from the light bursting forth and chasing away the darkness.
1: Absolutely. You know, in First John, in verse 5, it says, um, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehend, comprehended it not. And I, I really actually love this verse, but I have my own addendum. This is the, the uh, gospel according to Justin. But um, the darkness comprehended it not. But the light, the other lights that were out there, that's where they can see it. That's where they could comprehend it. If it wasn't, if that light wasn't shining in the dark, if that light was shining in some giant, you know, brilliant stadium, it would be a lot harder to see. It would be a lot harder to discern what it is you're looking at. But when you've got a light and it's surrounded by nothing but darkness, you see that light. There's nothing else to see.
0: It's pronounced. Right. Um, yeah. I had a good buddy who was raised in Washington state. And then he ended up moving to, I want to say Phoenix. And he said, one of the things that amazed him was just how distinct his shadow looked, right? He lived up in the Pacific Northwest where there was very little sunlight, right? So he wasn't used to that brilliant light. And then this really dark shadow. And so he 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 went back to that a lot because it made a a pretty big impression on him, right? This this idea of of as light gets more pronounced or as darkness gets more pronounced, so does the light. And I think it ties yeah. in perfectly with what you're saying there with, you know, it comprehendeth it not. It chases it away.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also interesting too, this whole thing kind of ties back to where we're at in the world right now on this grand scheme of things, it looks like more, I, I mean, it seems like everything is just kind of falling in, into darkness. Yep. And every day, if you watch the news, it just seems darker and darker and darker and it can get easy. Like you're talking about to just kind of want to fall asleep and ignore that because it's too hard to deal with, but it's really, it's, it's, I think it's an opportunity. I think it's because Christ is coming back. Um, Christ is going to return. And we need, and he needs us to be prepared. And he needs us to be ready. And we're not yep. going to do that. We're not going to be there unless we go through that kind of refining fire. If we don't face that darkness.
0: Yeah. And use the atonement, right? That's the other thing. Is engage- So often, I think we look at the atonement as something that happens to us by somebody else. But I don't think that's it at all. I think we're supposed to engage in that somewhat, right? Call upon that make that a part of of our daily walk if you will with with Christ to borrow from the from some of the the evangelicals is this idea of of working out our own salvation before god which you know it says in scripture and and i think that that goes into yeah we have a part to play in this whole idea of atonement um it doesn't become you know effective until we we call upon god to to deliver us from those things.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the path of sanctification. Right? Yep, yep. But, you know, that kind of brings up another interesting thing to me about the atonement. And this is very unique to Mormonism, but the atonement is for everybody. Yes. It really is for everybody. It's not, not just for Christians who profess his name. Right. And I've got a, a testimony that the atonement works in other people's lives it works in non-christians lives it works in buddhist absolutely atheist lives and it is their lives would be different without it and the other beautiful thing too is that through with a full understanding with a restored understanding the fullness of the gospel we know that the atonement ultimately will that everybody will be redeemed outside of a a few specific situations that that whether we you know we suffer the price of our sins or not might be up to us but the consequences the ultimate eternal consequences it's it's been paid yeah and everybody gets to be a partaker of that and that that is beautiful to me because i mean i i mean you probably understand this too since you didn't come from a, a christian background originally but I, I know a lot of good people that aren't Mormons, even some that aren't even Christians. And to me, just the idea that that they're gonna die and they're just gonna go to hell forever because they picked the wrong team or they picked the wrong church or something like that is, is abhorrent. Absolutely abhorrent. I mean, my just brotherly love for for these for these men and women makes me revolt at the idea that They're just going to be consigned to eternal punishment that they're not going to, that the atonement doesn't count for them because they didn't, they didn't claim his name, at least in this life.
0: Dude, that, that question right there is the thing that led me to Mormonism ultimately. Right. When, when, when my dad passed and I remember um, there was a religious leader, I won't say from what church or anything else. I just asked him what, what happened to my dad? Right. My dad was a good guy, but he wasn't a religious guy either. He was spiritual, but he wasn't religious. I asked him, what what happens to my dad? And he said, well, if he didn't call upon the name of Jesus Christ before he died, he's kind of lost. I'm like, well, what the hell does that? I mean, this is hours after my dad had passed. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And he's I'm like, dude, no, that doesn't sit right. That's what started me down this path was to answer that question, right? What happened to my old man? Because he was a good guy. He did a lot of good in the world. I mean, if, if that's your idea of a just and loving God, I don't want that God. Because that God isn't power, powerful enough to save, right? So this idea of, a, of an infinite and eternal atonement is something that is very unique to Mormonism and something that I don't think we should take, take lightly.
1: Yeah, it's easy to take that for granted when you're when you are raised in the church and yeah. these things are just hot. But you know, it's funny that you say that because I mean, you already mentioned it, but I think that was actually one of the driving forces, if not the driving force, behind Joseph Smith's motivation that day in the in the Sacred Grove. You know, what ha- what about what happened to his brother Alvin? What's the state of the soul? You've got these different churches. You got some that say that it's all you're predestined to this or that. You've got, uh, and I think he was concerned right legitimate absolute sincere concern and having a need to know well what is true because because i've got a brother on the other side and i i need to know
0: right right let's talk about i think one of the other things that are that is unique to mormonism is this idea that While the cross was certainly an important and integral part that had to happen, the bulk of the atonement happens in the garden, right? And that's uniquely Mormon. Uh, That is uh, uniquely—it's not something you hear a lot in evangelical churches or uh, Catholic churches or anything else. This is something that's unique to the restoration. And it's this idea of, of, you know, Christ took upon him your sins. And I, and I want we'll dive in a little deeper to what all the atonement entails. But it was somewhat earth-shattering to me, this idea that everything I did wrong, the Savior paid for, right? That, to me, was mind-blowing and earth-shattering at some level, is that there's this guy who came and he lived a sinless life and his reward for that was since my life has been perfect now i'm going to take on everyone else's sin and pay the price for that
1: yeah it's it's profound um and I think you're right. I think that to me, when I think of the atonement, I I, I don't think of the cross. Although, I, you know, I actually don't really have an issue with the symbolism of, of the cross. No, I, I, I don't either. I think there's, to me, it's very, I mean, I think it's a wonderful symbol as a Christian because Christ told us to take up our crosses and follow him. Right. And that's what, a, when I see a cross, that's what I think. I think of that charge from Christ himself to take up my cross as well and to follow him. But when I think the atonement it's it's the garden it's not about yeah he was physically tortured he was brutalized his death was horrific that was no mistake that was a bad deal but that was i think that was nothing compared to the more spiritual experience of the atonement that he had to endure in the garden
0: I remember once i had went backpacking up in the Tetons on the border of Idaho and Wyoming. And I woke up early one night, uh, one morning, and everyone else was asleep. So I thought, yeah, I'm just going to get the fire going and I'll just sit here and read my scriptures. So I got my little headlamp on and I'm, I'm reading. And I'm reading this account, right? I'm reading the account of the Savior in the garden and then his subsequent execution on the cross. And it was the weirdest thought I'd ever had, but as I'm reading it, and I'm reading about him bleeding from every pore because of the weight that he feels, that the the thought came to my mind, wow, by then, probably the physical torture was almost a relief in some ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and that's that's actually kind of an interesting thing. I, I've been looking at um, some of the scriptures and doctrine, covenants, and stuff, and I, I've heard this theory that, I mean, this is just a theory, but to me, I, it kind of, there seems to be something to this, that the there's something about blood. There's something very special about blood. You look at the, the Jewish um, mm-hmm. traditions and the, their ceremonies about you know the, the blood and putting blood on things and the symbolism behind that. You look at – and then you look at the restored understanding of the atonement, that it wasn't just sweating like blood. But no, he was bleeding from every pore. He was purging that blood out of him. And then we also have this account that resurrected beings don't have blood, that that they're quickened with spirit. And I just – it makes me think that he was actually undergoing a transformation there as well, a physiological transformation while he was doing that. Right. Um. And and then one of the evidences to that is when they when the when the soldiers, um, pierced his side with the spear and and water came out, not blood. Right. Right. It's, it's kind of a, I think uh, there's some interesting symbolism there. And then also just that you know it's through Christ's blood, that we are right. washed clean, that we're washed in His blood, and there's some um, beautiful symbolism I think behind that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I the, the other part of the atonement that I don't think we focus enough on is, it, don't get me wrong, it is a tremendous gift that we have that um, we, we have this ability to be forgiven. But I think sometimes maybe the bigger thing that we miss with the atonement is that he felt all of our pain. Right. And that makes him uniquely qualified to be able to give us rest and relief because he took it all. He knows all the pain I ever endured. That story I shared just a few minutes ago about my son, he knew that pain in a personal way. And because of that, he is uniquely qualified to be able to give comfort in our times of of desperation and sorrow and woe and all those things yeah
1: i mean the scriptures talk about he takes he, he takes upon himself our infirmities and right. that's 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 a little bit different from our sins that's a little bit different you know um i've been saying spanish a little bit you know foremost you got this you got this this word it, it deals with like our physical our physiological shortcomings as well um sicknesses the pains the the things that we experience in these mortal bodies but as far as things sometimes we miss on the atonement um to me one of the that really stands out that i am probably i'd be lying if i said i was most grateful for because i think i'm probably most grateful that i'm forgiven but a very close second is that there's restitution in the atonement because you know some of the things that I've done in my life have caused other people harm and caused other people pain and I think that understanding that not only is he paying the price he is going to make restitution he has the power to make restitution as well and I I find great joy and hope in that as well that not only does he has he paid the, has he suffered So to speak, for my sins, but that he has power to undo to make restitution for the suffering that my sins caused other people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and that's just it. He and that's the amazing thing about it, right? Is that not only did he bear the weight of our sins, but he bared the weight of how those sins made everybody else feel. And when, when you start diving into this, you realize, oh, there's not much I can do to pay this back. Right. And so sometimes we get in this attitude of, well, I'll just keep the commandments to kind of pay things back. And I talked about that earlier. Right. And it's like, good luck. Good luck. Let me know when you get a tenth of the way there because you're probably translated at that point because th- there's no paying that back.
1: Let me, let me challenge you a little bit on this. Not that I disagree, but. Okay. Um... So in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section, I think it's 138, um, we have Joseph F. Smith speaking, Mm -hmm. Um, and he says that speaking of those who are dead, that the dead who repent will be redeemed through obedience to the ordinance of the house of God. OK, makes sense. And after they have paid the penalty of the transgression and are washed clean, shall receive a reward according to their works for their heirs to salvation. And that's kind of what I was saying, like everybody is saved in right. Mormon theology. But it says after they have paid the penalty of their transgressions. And, you know, for a while, I kind of looked at that and thought, well, it kind of sounds like they're going to they're going to pay for their own sins then. Um, and that is a, a concept that you you know those spirits in spirit prison you know they're not going to be released until they've until they well, how does it go they pay the most farthing or something you know right basically um but the implication is eventually they will have gone through that process and then be you know declared fit for a, a terrestrial kingdom
0: but i I was under the freedom. I was under the impression that that was only for people who rejected Christ's atonement. yeah, yeah you accepted yeah. the atonement that you could pass that by.
1: oh absolutely yeah, but I also think that it's it I don't think that's correct either though. Um, the reason why is because it says those who have paid the penalty of the transgression and are washed clean. And that being washed clean implies something beyond, beyond ourselves. Right. And so what I think is we can't really atone for our own sins. What we can do is we can suffer for our own sins. Yeah. But just because we've suffered for our sins, that doesn't actually rectify anything. No. Because oh. the balance, the, the scales, whoever whoever is injured, whoever has been harmed by our actions, that that has not been undone. We might we might have an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, so to speak. Right, a law of Moses approach to sin and atonement doesn't really work in the long run, and that works okay for a legal for a legal justice system, maybe, but that doesn't work for for,
0: uh, for a sp- a spiritual atonement.
1: Yeah, that doesn't work for a spiritual atonement, and I that that just leaves everybody suffering, and right. everybody damned. So I think even even for those sin those are uh, those sinners those of us sinners <laughs> right. who don't accept Christ and pay for their own transgressions, that's still really not an atonement. They're just paying the consequences, and it still requires the atonement for them to be washed clean. And to be, you know, to be fit to inherit their glory.
0: Well, and and I think it's important, too, to also realize that just because we may be forgiven doesn't necessarily mean that we're relinquished from all consequences either. Right. I have. Absolutely. I've had to play pay a couple, you know, there's a couple of times. Oh, I can't believe I'm going to admit this on air. I remember once there was a girl that I had a relationship with that I ended it pretty horrifically. And this is when I first discovered I was a dirtbag. Mm. And I ran into her uh at the store one day and I thought, What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? How sorry are you? And I just took a few minutes to apologize. And that was the most humiliating moment I think I can remember up to that point in my young life was to have to admit I I was wrong and I hurt you. And I, there's nothing I can do to help you, you know, with, with the hurt that I caused, but I just want you to know, I'm sorry. I still had to bear the weight of that in some degree. Right. And I think, uh, Mm -hmm. I, I think that, that just because we, we, we know we can be forgiven. That doesn't necessarily mean we're completely off the hook, right? We still have to contend with that and, and do what we can to make things right Absolutely. ourselves.
1: Absolutely. It reminds me of, of King David in Psalms, right? For thou will not right. leave my soul in hell.
0: Right. So, you know, He had made mistakes. He was,
1: there were consequences that David realized he gave up trying to avoid. He knew that these things were, were going to have to be dealt with. Um, he found his peace in knowing that it just wouldn't be eternal. That there would be an eventual redemption even for him for what he had caused. And I think we all can kind of take a certain comfort in in that when we consider the things that I mean, i've I've been there. like I said i've I've uh, the relationships that I went through. <laughs> yeah, I learned that lesson, yeah, and that lesson too. and it sucks. It really sucks. Absolutely. that's what I mean about too that that I find joy in the atonement not just that I get to be forgiven too, but that even though it's not within my power it's within the lord's power to to make that up to her you know
0: yep yep absolutely okay so we we've talked a little bit about the garden part of this now i don't want to get into the gory details if you want if people want that i would recommend passion for the christ or passion of the <laughs> christ and go watch that movie and get a real good idea of how horrific the 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 torture was that that our savior had to endure there Um, There is some rich symbolism in that suffering that, you know, harkens back to the types and shadows that were practiced in the Old Testament. Um, But I want to focus now a little bit on the resurrection. Because this is the moment at which it becomes plainly evident that something has shifted. In the heavens as well as in the earth, right? Mary goes to the tomb and it's empty. It's gone, he's gone. And I find it, especially for this time period. Now, there's some serious implications here with who he appears to first. Um, if you were going to go based off of a hierarchy within a church structure you would say well he'd probably go to peter first he's the chief apostle but he didn't he first appears to mary now there's a lot of um significance to that right one is you got to ask the question was was she his wife i tend to believe she was but more than that, Justin, this now will separate Christianity at, in large por- portion. And I'm going to come back and, and here in a second and, and tell you why I think Joseph Smith's, Smith did something similar. This sets Christianity apart in the sense that he appeared to a woman first, right? This is a time when women are viewed as chattel. And now he's like coming to her first to proclaim his resurrection. That's revolutionary.
1: um yeah, it is. I, to me, it's not that surprising, though. I, no, I think I, it's absolutely clear that because I mean, I mean, if I think who who would I you know if if i if I were to die and and I could come back, who would I want to see first? Do I want right. to go see my bishop? Do I want to go see? Do I want to go see the, the eldest Corn present, or do I want to go maybe uh, see my wife?
0: Right. Especially
1: right. if I knew that she was in pain and suffering because of uh, feelings of loss.
0: Right. Right. And and even for those who don't believe that he was married, it's revolutionary, right? Because again, up to this time, women are second class citizens. They don't have the same rights that men do, and Jesus totally upends that whole thing in that one moment.
1: Well, and I'd say it's even more than he appeared to her first
0: because
1: he – I mean, yeah, he appeared to her first, but he also says, what? Don't touch me. I have not yet ascended to my father. Right um and yet later on when he when he with the next when he next does visit the church he's asking them to feel his feel his palms right feel his side feel his wounds come touch me so he actually he even went to mary before he went to father yeah i think that's pretty pretty amazing oh that's
0: a great point that's that's a fantastic point i hadn't thought about that but yeah you're 100% right now i want to fast forward and do a comparison here um I shouldn't say a comparison, but maybe an addendum. I think Joseph Smith had just as much an effect on certainly Mormonism, obviously, but Christianity as a whole. And I think had we stuck to our guns as Mormons, uh, especially within the, the mother church, Joseph Smith comes out and goes, no, no, Godhood's not just for men. Godhood's for the sisters as well. That's revolutionary, right? So I, I, I find it interesting that you have both Jesus and Joseph that in some ways tip the religions of their day kind of on their head, right? That they, they absolutely changed the paradigm. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, the temple... The potential the, the blessings that we are are promised we can attain to in the temple of of kings and queens, priests and priestesses. Right? It's even even I think priesthood is something that ultimately in the eternities is uh a, is is a, a man and woman together. It's not just yeah. a man alone.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and and Joseph's very clear about that, brethren. You're not gonna get to where you want to be. Without your, without your wives Know that right now that, that that has to be um, You know And I think this might be a good time too That I've said this before And I really believe it I think I think modern Christendom Has, has painted Christ In really pastel colors Right Very soft Very gentle Which he was I'm not saying he wasn't But let's not forget for a moment That he was pissing everybody off. He was pissing off the religious structure of his time. He was pissing off the the civil authority of his time. Th- this was a man who in some ways was, was into challenging the status quo and did so.
1: Oh, absolutely. Not washing their hands before eating even.
0: Right. Right. I mean, he... they were,
1: they, these guys were radicals.
0: Yep, yep, absolutely. One of the things I've often thought and wondered is what must it have been like to have been some of his apostles? Just trying to make sense in your mind about what had happened. Christ talks about this coming forth of the kingdom. And now all of a sudden, he's gone. You think he's died what what must they have felt inside uh, of their rooms where they were hiding right let's not forget fear has to be a big motivation here you just saw them off your leader you're not immune to that so they're hiding out and probably trying there's probably grief and fear all mixed into one trying to make sense of it
1: well i think it does go to show how the lord works with us um you you might think that, well, gee, those guys live, were living their life with Christ. Surely Christ explained everything to them in explicit detail. Uh, well, apparently not. Apparently. So, right. I mean, I, I kind of look at that to a degree and say, well, you know, I'm just trying to understand stuff too. And, right. and I find some, some comfort to know that, that you know, the, the apostles, even the apostles in Christ's time could, could – needed to learn gradually, light upon light, precept upon precept, even though they were taught directly by Christ. And so that's how Christ dealt with them. I think that's Christ. I think that's how Christ and God deals with us, that we just kind of learn things step by step. He comes to us where we're at, helps us along, but he just doesn't, he doesn't throw it all upon us all at once. Right. Which I think is, you know, I think that's for our benefit because it's so easy to take up too much strength you know when we're given too much that pride enters in you look at the uh um uh xenix analogy where you've got the the vineyard and the and the and the vi- and the olive trees and you know they work them, but sometimes they just take up strength too much there was, a, it was always this balance of nourish them enough but don't nourish them or they kind of take up strength or it, it becomes overly haughty it becomes overly maybe prideful we can we're not maybe we're not ready for the things that um or, or there's truth that i mean something can be true but it can also be a lie right i think i think we might have talked about stuff like this before um, yeah somebody can be saying something that's technically completely accurate but said in a time and in a context to actually deceive and manipulate right and so even even a truth can be a lie in the wrong context. And as, as, as I think, uh, you know, in my personal, you know, walk with Christ, I, I think, you know, it's just, just enough, just enough for what I need now. And, uh, and hopefully not, hopefully no more because that's, there's wisdom in, in dealing with us that way. And I think that's how we dealt with the apostles and they, you know, that was part of their process of of learning and developing their own faith and getting their own testimony and understanding. So Mm -hmm. I'm not too surprised to see that they kind of missed it. They thought, I think they thought they were part of some sort of a political rebellion to a large degree. And uh, they were just as surprised as the populace when, when uh, that wasn't the intention at, at that coming.
0: Absolutely. All right. Before we switch gears now and move on to Ishtar. Let me, let me ask you this. What does the atonement mean to you? I know that's a big ask.
1: Yeah. Well, man, it, it is a big ask. Cause it's so big. There's, there's just, it means so much uh, to me. To me, the atonement is is probably everything, but the most important thing is it is my joy. I remember when I was in college studying the scriptures, and well, actually, I was studying philosophy, <laughs> but uh, it got me on this kind of idea on questions and looking at the meanings of words, and and I remember at one point I thought, I want to, I want to know what joy is, uh, but rather than taking the philosopher's approach and just kind of reason it around in my head i thought i'm gonna i'm gonna see what the scriptures have to say about it and one of the things that occurred to me well was where does joy occur scripturally what does it mean there what does it occur for the first time where's the first explanation of joy and it's fascinating because when adam and eve are are kicked out of the garden and are so to speak cursed um Mm -hmm. you know eve is told that um that she would um was it labor, labor and sorrow or not labor that uh she'd bear
0: in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children
1: yeah in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children in sorrow well that's not joy that's kind of the opposite of joy but in the book of moses which has a much more fuller detailed account of of genesis um adam and eve have been obeying after they've been kicked out they've been obeying god they've been doing doing what they were told they said they don't know why but they're they're going to do it anyways and an angel comes to adam and explains and says hey you know there's there's a savior prepared there's a savior prepared and there's going to be redemption and that is the first instance of the word joy coming up historically is when they learned that there'd be a savior. And I thought the reason why even more so than for themselves is for their children, right? That's, that's what joy is. And so to me, the atonement, it's not just hope for myself. It's, it's a hope for my children. It's a hope for my posterity. And that, and that to me is, is joy knowing that they've got a chance. They don't have to go through what I did. They don't have to suffer the things that that I did, and they don't, and just and and with me, they don't have to be consigned to the to an eternal consequence of of our failings and bad decisions.
0: Absolutely. For me, lately, I'll just say lately, because the, the more I dive into the atonement, the more I realize I'll never have it figured out. Right, I'll I'll have a rudimentary knowledge until until I get get into you know hopefully get to a place to where where the lord can instruct me further but lately i've I've noticed that the first five letters in the word atonement spell at one and that idea of being at one with with god again through christ's sacrifice i think can't be overstated right it's the that that act that the savior performed on our behalf, the suffering in the garden, the scourgings at the hands of the Romans, and his ultimate death, all is supposed to point us back to getting back to our dad, getting us back to our father, and being at one with him. And I think it, it this idea of resurrection that was part of the atonement, this idea that, that your humanity can be holy. That's, that's big stuff. And that's stuff that, that deserves certainly our gratitude to the Savior. Certainly more than gratitude, maybe our adoration, our worship of, of, of Christ that took upon him all manner of pain and sorrow and yet bore it so that we could have a chance right um, i love what what the greeks the romans and even the vikings used to say about their gods they used to call them champions and i've often looked at christ and thought i can't think of a better word than the champion of humanity right the 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 the, the god that that saved all you know it's the infinite and eternal atonement goes without bounds there's no bounds to it it's forever and so for me the atonement is is the crux of this whole thing that we're doing here right of the restored gospel is this idea that yeah he came he was real he lived he still lives and through his sacrifice we can ultimately not only be with our families forever, but be as God is one day, and that's revolutionary and heavy stuff.
1: Absolutely, amen.
0: All right, so now that we've set that table, and I wanted to do that first because I feel like it's so important. Let's talk about the progression of Easter here a little bit, or the 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 progression of the the celebration of of the Savior's atonement which which we kind of touched on briefly before we did this part.
1: Yeah, it's this is a kind of an interesting subject, I think. Um and honestly, it's it's one personally that I'm I'm not particularly convicted on either way but it's it's kind of a, a debate and it, it was it's become a debate out there apparently i didn't realize this cuz i mean i first came upon the idea that you know most christian holidays are kind of paganized uh oh, i don't know maybe uh 20 years ago or so you know I mean, a long time ago and so to me it wasn't it's it's sort of self-evident right when i mean when you look at the way that we celebrate these holidays, which are supposed to be holy days. Right. Um, they're they're not particularly holy. Um. No. And so clearly something seems a little bit off. And, you know, having had a little bit of experience with uh with some of the Jewish traditions, you know, I mean I can see holiness in that. Even oh, though absolutely. it might not be the fullness. There's there's something there. But, you know, you look at the way that we traditionally celebrate things like Easter and Christmas, and it's just like, hmm, I don't know. It seems pretty hollow and empty at best.
0: Yeah, it's when, when we start talking about, you know, Easter and and Christmas. They, and, and that's why I love having Joshua Erickson on the podcast, because he keeps all those old jewish holidays which is are just rich in symbolism um and i feel like we as mormons can take a lot away from that because if this is the if this is the you know the restoration of all things certainly we have to look at some of those early holidays and those feasts and and ask ourselves um are there different ways we can do this
1: yeah absolutely um but, you know, it's interesting. So I served a mission in Korea. And they've got this holiday they call Chuseok. And it's a traditional thing. And it's, you know, the early Christians labeled it ancestor worship and and forbade it. Um, but I, even the Christian Koreans, most of them still, still follow this tradition. And it's not really a... I don't believe it's intended as a deification of their dead. I think it's a... A respect and honor of their dead that had departed and they've got their own kind of feasts and and ceremonies around it which i think are actually pretty beautiful and they do this around the time of, of thanksgiving in the u.s but it's on the lunar calendar so it kind of shifts around and i i had an opportunity to participate with the korean family i was invited into their home and and was able to experience that with them and it was a beautiful experience and i remember thinking you know this I think there's a lot of value in remembering our ancestors and those who came before us, even if they're not God. Um, there's a lot of value in remembering them and respecting their lives that allowed us our lives. And so, you know, I kind of took away with that and you know, I want to, when I get back to the States, when I get a family of my own, I, I want to continue I want to develop that tradition i want to bring that kind of a tradition into my family it might not be explicitly christian but it's it's kind of beautiful and it can bring a lot of awareness and connection to our ancestors who are a vital part i mean and if you look at the um uh the the malachi prophecy that you know that before the day of the war that the, the that you turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children, all that stuff. That's that's a part of the restoration too. Is is recognizing, um, and loving, and serving our ancestors. And so, um, so I thought that, anyways. So I mean, to me, I'm not I'm not a hardcore fundamentalist when it comes to holidays and where I mean, you know some Christians are just like, if it's not in the Bible, it's 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 of the devil. And, and it should be forbidden. I don't think that's necessarily the case as long as what's being practiced is enlightening. And uh, but, but honestly, I mean, sure, Christmas and Easter, I remember them being kind of fun times as a kid, but they they weren't particularly enlightening.
0: No, no, and I think that's that's the challenge we have as parents now, right? is to somehow, maybe take those things back right take take those things back i will say easter i think presents some unique challenges um in the sense that even the name easter you know is is ishtar right and when you start studying who ishtar was she's an abomination of a god right mm-hmm. her 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 adherence would would uh go through well, I'm just going to call it like it's, I see it here. This is going to get me another strike. Um, they would transition from male to female. That was one of the ways they would do it. Uh, as, as her priests or priestesses is, is this idea of changing from man to woman and woman to man. Uh, it was absolutely an abomination. Um, the egg. The egg. Right that that we all liked color as kids and and whatnot. Um those are you know that that has symbolism back to her fertility rights. And so some of this is deeply interwoven and and we have a real challenge, I think, of of trying to parse it out. And I never used to be this guy either. I was more the guy like, you're reading mm-hmm. too much into it, and you know you're you're diving too deep and but the more I looked at it, the more I was like, ooh. Ooh, this is not good.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I remember that. Like, I remember growing up, you know, Disney movies, you know, Aladdin, Little Mermaid. Oh, whatever. It's fun games. I, well, I kind of grew up with it. So, yeah, you know, I've got this this kind of nostalgic attachment to it. But then I, I watch it as a parent. And it's like, I don't want my kids watching this. This is This is a story about, you know, this is kind of glorifying theft. This one's kind of glorifying disobeying your parents. And making deals with the devil instead and don't worry it's got a happy ending because <laughs> right. it. and suddenly it's like hmm man i used to not be that guy but oh i'm starting to become that guy <laughs> because yeah man once you kind of pull back the curtain on some of this stuff it's like it maybe it's harmless maybe it's all fun and games but you kind of got to ask yourself how can you get it wrong? Pretty much every single time, though, right? Why does every single kids' movie that comes out have to preach some kind of a anti-parent, anti-Christian values, anti even just tri- anti-traditional culture values? I mean, it's it can't just be a happy. I mean, there's got to be an agenda here, and I think it, it's undeniable that it is. Maybe it's slow, but over time, this is having an effect on on culture.
0: It absolutely is. So, I mean, I don't know. What's your thoughts? What? How do you take that back even?
1: Well, so this is kind of interesting because I remember reading quite a bit about um, Easter and its pagan traditions mm-hmm. um, a long time ago. And, you know, I knew we were going to come on and, and, and we we're going to be talking about the atonement, but also maybe Easter a little bit. And I thought I'd, you know, i would just, you know, freshen up on some of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So,
1: so, you know, I do a Google search. Um, Easter, Ishtar, and I can't find a single site on Google's top list that isn't saying that that's not true at all, and it's been completely debunked. So I'm like, hmm. Well, that's interesting. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it has been debunked. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's not the case. Maybe it is a, a Christian tradition. I mean, if it's true, I'm I'd, I'd be open to that. But I start looking at these art, all these articles and they're all like, you know, 2000, 2021, 2022, 2023. and I start reading them and they're all saying that the exact they, they, like huge chunks are quoted, verbatim in all of these things. And I'm just like, well, that's kind of interesting. That's kind of interesting. I can't seem to find anything suggesting that Easter has anything to do with pagan religion and i'm doing a google search i mean i thought google's supposed to be like you know anti-christian values what what, what is google's motivation and and the media's motivation and promoting it? i mean some of the stories are from you know these kind of mega churches that kind of buy into that whole um well, what was that campaign they they ran at the super bowl um christ he knows us right <laughs> instead of instead of uh instead of Christ he's your savior repent it was no he gets you he gets you okay no okay whatever but it's those same kinds of churches that are they're promoting these messages and here we've got big Tech who seems to be really pushing this idea and so I kind of was looking through these articles I mean would you be interested in trying to challenge some of these points
0: yeah yeah let's let's see what we can come up with I don't know what they are but Let's give it a crack.
1: Yeah. All right. So this was just a, a, a short one I found from a, a, a radio a radio guy. Um, where'd it go? Saying that Easter is not a pagan holiday. Um, Christian radio talk show. Uh, looks like a, a Cal Clark show. I'm not familiar with it, but... I don't know it. So he basically starts off by saying that he he quotes this scholar well first of all he says it's a meme there's recently been a meme going around suggesting Easter and ishtar are connected and i don't know maybe there is i'm not on social media anymore but this goes way back this goes a lot further back than than a meme you know in the last year or two but it starts out trying to set it in that kind of a context and then he he quotes this saint Bede. A Catholic, an English, uh, an English Catholic monk, who basically puts forth this claim that um, it is a what's called after the goddess. Okay, he basically makes the claim that Easter, the month, the holiday that we call Easter, was called after a goddess of these pagans named um iostre whose honor feasts were celebrated in that month and and uh so this is a this is a quote from a catholic monk in 725 ad making the case that easter has pagan origins um but apparently and i think this would be worth going over because i keep finding these points everywhere when i look for this now so that's why i was like you know i i want to bring this up because if anybody's listening to this and they and they decide to do their own google search on it they're probably going to find this kind of an article because this is just right everywhere so this guy claims there's several things worth noting about saint Bede's writing first it's worth reiterating that this is the only piece of writing in human history that mentions the goddess iostre okay hmm. well i find that kind of interesting um, however, have you ever read some of the church history stuff like written in journals from the actual journal, like the handwritten type journal for sure. copies? Of sure. saints? Um, it was shocking to me at first how challenging spelling apparently was.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> not even that long ago. I mean, today with computers, autocorrect our, our current education system, it seems pretty straightforward, but I don't think spelling was nearly as as straightforward in the past and especially when you're trying to describe the name of some god in some religion who might be using an entirely different language than than you're using how do you end up coming up with that so i mean he's saying that this this goddess eostre doesn't show up isn't mentioned anywhere else well what does he mean by the goddess eostre because there's also in the pagan world you often had gods being transplanted from culture to culture to culture and each culture, they, one culture would go to bat, you know, they'd go to Babylon. Oh, I like, like that God. Well, we're going to take that God back to our people, but we, in our language, we're going to call that God and they'll come up with an entirely new name. Sometimes they're phonetically similar. Sometimes they're not similar at all. And uh, that was a pretty common practice. So just because you can't find a goddess by that specific spelling i don't think that necessarily means that, that that this guy was up in the air i mean he had to have come up with it somewhere i mean do you think this catholic monk was just like i'm gonna make up a a fake goddess and i mean everybody around it would probably be like um nobody's ever heard of that goddess you're lying What you just wrote there that that isn't true yeah i mean you
0: wouldn't do that right right the the and here's the other thing we know for a fact that the gods were shared across culture. It happened a lot between um, uh, Rome and Egypt, um, Isis and Aphrodite, mm-hmm. and then you can trace it back further. So I, I just read a fascinating book about this, and I can't recommend it enough. It's uh, uh, by a guy who was born Jewish and then became a Christian minister, and his name's Jonathan Kahn, and he has a book called *Return of the Gods* and he does i i recommend it he does a very good job of documenting how those those in in parentheses here for anyone not watching gods how they how they 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 went from one society to another right through trans through through you know people visiting egypt and then they take it back to rome so if you look at like isis in egypt well, you saw that the Romans identified her as Aphrodite. Likewise, the Babylonians, Isis was Ishtar. And so when this mm-hmm. Catholic monk starts finding this other name, you got to ask a question. He's probably not familiar with with whatever the Babylonians were speaking or with whatever the, the native tongue was of the Egyptians. Um Maybe he was really good with Latin, but we know Latin wouldn't come across the same way. So I think there's enough there that you got to say, okay, it looks to me like this was one of those cases where this god was carried in by her adherence to, to a different civilization, and that's how he was able to translate it
1: yeah exactly. that's that's what I come to too. I don't think that really proves anything just because you don't find that specific spelling of this goddess right. I mean he wasn't talking about Isis or Istar. And then his second point is really kind of the same actually. He says as as Sorensen mentioned, it's more likely that Saint Bede was mistaken about this adoption for several reasons. Um, Eostre does not appear in any of the surrounding mythologies as she would if she were a goddess. You can't make that judgment unless you know the story of this goddess, though, which this Catholic priest didn't share. I mean, without the story, how can you know whether that goddess existed in any of the other surrounding cultures, mythologies? They don't keep the same names to these things. You wouldn't expect them to keep the same names. Um, Even within a single society, too, the the names change over time.
0: Well, let's just look at Christianity, right? When Christianity starts out, the name of Jesus in in Aramaic and Hebrew is Joshua. Right? Mm-hmm. And then the Hellenized version of that becomes Jesus. And so you essentially have the same thing on Christianity's side. Right? Yeah. This this name that is carried over and is translated differently.
1: Oh yeah, like in Korean it's uh Yesu. Yeah, how do they end up with Yesu? Shouldn't it, I mean the Koreans can make the sounds for Jesus for the most part. Why wouldn't they go with Jesus? Well, because the Bible was taken by Spanish missionaries into China. Right. And then it went from China to Korea. And and so they pronounced the J as a as a Ye, and it's 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 Yesu.
0: So yeah, it that argument that, that that guy makes in that ar- in that article holds no water none
1: yeah so those are the, his first two arguments and i agree i think they're very very weak that doesn't prove or disprove anything other than that pagan gods are diverse in interpretation and and in, in name and in pronunciation even ishtar you know i think that we pronounce different people have different phoneticizations of of how they yep. say that so so here's where it gets a little more interesting um Thirdly, if she was a local goddess, why would the Catholic Church adopt and Christianize a springtime celebration of hers?
0: Well, I think you have to look at the Catholic Church as an extension of Rome. And we know for a fact Rome did this a lot, right? Because when Rome Mm -hmm. was empire building... I'm not a fan of empires. I, I want to get that out of the way. but as far as being able to build a, a really sustainable Empire, Rome had it figured out, right? We're gonna go in, we're gonna show overwhelming force. so hopefully no one ever fires a shot, right That's the other thing that's lost in yeah. history is that Rome conquers a lot of ground without ever tossing a spear or firing an arrow, right Just the the sight of these guys coming was enough to be like, so you just want us to pay taxes and we can keep our gods good we're fine we'll go with that and so um the 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 fact that that rome was able to do that lends itself to just that thing that you were talking about there
1: yeah well it was keep your gods but also subvert them right um you had the, this gymnasium culture stuff that they had right from the greeks and they were actually pretty good at at um, subverting the cultures that they conquered as well. I think that was part of the success of their empire was they realized we need – if we conquer an empire, we need things to be homo- homo- homogenous, homogenous. Yeah. among these different conquered vassal states, or they're going to knock it along and break off, and there's going to be conflict, and so – they were really good at bringing all that kind of stuff together, and they were very good at doing it in a, in a politically correct way, right? And so they – you could keep your god, but your god has to now mean what they want it to mean is kind of – was the, really the true approach that was going on there. Right. And I think it was in Christianity that they found this kind of a, a perfect – a perfect weapon their empire building because for whatever reason there are these fragments of truths and all these pagan religions and there's these traditions and there's these stories that all kind of really kind of point back to christ and stuff i mean the you know egyptians you've got you know the with the story of isis and all that um resurrections going on there's these fragments of truth in all of these things and I think they recognize, well, in Christianity and in the story of Christ, we can actually um, unify all of this stuff even even better than we've ever done before. We can bring it all together. Um, but in doing so, they also polluted the primary, yes. a lot of the primary meanings and messages. And they also had to make concessions because some of their people really liked their parties. And so it was like, fine, keep your – keep your party but convert to christianity
0: right right and, and it, uh, yeah and and i think that's an outgrowth of that roman mentality right and so they're they're able to to use their their subverted cultures if you will use their their holidays to reinforce their religion and at the same time it it's a heck of a unifier right
1: well i mean it's actually fascinating isn't there some interesting parallels to today right i mean didn't don't we just have didn't we just get a new holiday i don't know if if it was official or not but this uh trans day of visibility
0: yes yes we did (laughs) yes you are correct
1: it's it's interesting how empires use these things to you know kind of subvert cultures so yeah so this argument if it was a local goddess why would the catholic church adopt and christianize that kind of a, of a of a pagan religion or 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 celebration well uh because they uh don't want to cause a revolution they don't want to rock the boat they're trying to make everything everything just kind of equally corrupt
0: right right so uh,
1: and like you said too because they, they, they did it with everything else along with christianity i mean <laughs> over yeah. time nothing happens in a vacuum
0: you have to look at where where you know christendom got its got its it's funny start right is this coming
1: from a catholic i don't think this guy's a catholic maybe this guy is a cat i don't know um it'd be funny if it was a a, a protestant making this argument on (laughs) why the catholic church would do something like that right but uh as essentially um culturally protestant at least as far as the catholic church goes um i don't find it that difficult to understand why that would happen so that was his that was his third argument now here's his fourth one making the jump from a goddess named iostre who may or may not have actually been part of the pagan religion to ishtar the babylon deity isn't logical
0: Ooh,
1: oh that's a that's a strong argument there i'm not I'm not sure if I could counter that, although he's got a little more to say. Let me keep going, to be fair. Um, Eostre likely comes from Yastre, which meant springtime or dawn in Old English. Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess, is the goddess of many things, including fertility and sex, and the supporters of the Ishtar theory have conveniently chosen those two devotions to match springtime and life. So, okay, to me, logically, that he argued against his point right and it really begs the question it really really begs the question if easter and the way we celebrate easter is christian in any way or form then why does the symbology all point to ishtar regardless of whether you call it ishtar or yostre or whatever you've got you know these this focus on these eggs which you know that it makes sense from a fertility perspective. One of the counterarguments that I've seen also is that well, um, eggs and bunnies um, are not are not symbols of, of Ishtar. Her thing was was lions, and I'm like, well, but she was the goddess of fertility, right? I mean, I don't think it takes a, a genius to realize there's kind of a symbolic connection between things like eggs and rabbits in the concept of fertility if you can't if you can't connect those dots then i, I don't know what what else to say um they're pretty I, and if you're going to argue that it that it is somehow christian then okay where does that go where is christ described as as the rabbit where where you know in where is the sacrament of eggs right in the bible um where does that come from? And I also conveniently, um they're speaking as far as Ishtar goes, that they can't connect it to eggs. Well, it's interesting because you pointed out that Ishtar has many names, um, including yep. Isis, including Aphrodite. Yep. Aphrodite. I might I might pronounce that wrong, but no. Um, um and one of them also is 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 this idea of Venus and the birth of Venus in an egg or a clamshell. So you actually can tie all of the symbolism of what we celebrate in Easter to these pagan holidays. So to me, it's kind of like whether you call it, I mean, whether you can, you know, from a scholarly perspective, find evidence um, of this chain of custody for these traditions right. that go back to Ishtar directly or not, it doesn't really change the fact that the symb- these symbolisms have nothing to do with Christ and the atonement or th- and the resurrection, and everything to do with pagan fertility gods.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna s- share a story now that I have never shared on the podcast. I've alluded to it a couple of times, but I've never shared it. When I worked back east, I worked with a good friend whose name was Joel. And Joel's dad was a rabbi, and immediately I was like, "Ooh!" Because I was just fascinated with with Judaism. I still am. Right? It's hard to understand Jesus without understanding his background, and Judaism is his background.
1: There's right? a lot of depth there.
0: So I, I had a a very big drive, and and Joel's dad was super accommodating. Right? I was like. I want to see a Seder meal. And he's like, well, come on over. I'll let you participate in it. Bring your wife and your kids. And and absolutely. And he was super accommodating. And I promise you, this is going someplace. I was reading in Lamentations and Jeremiah, and I kept coming across Baal and Moloch all the time. Right? And I'm like, okay, the Lord's pointing me here, but I don't understand what he's trying to tell me. Well, it's Old Testament stuff. Let's go talk to Joel's dad. So I make an appointment to go see Joel's dad. And I sit down and I start talking with him. And I said, tell me what this means in Lamentation Lamentations, Jeremiah. And he goes, no. And I'm thinking, well, what the hell do you mean? No, you've been so open with me so far. What do you mean? No, And he's like, that's not for you Gentiles. He's like, just trust. There's a real good reason we don't do this, where we don't pass this along without a lot of um, preparatory work. So, no. And I said, well, can I have the preparatory work? And he said, no. And so I left somewhat dejected and a little pissed off, right? And he, (laughs) he calls me back a few days later, and he said, I can't get our last conversation out of our mind out of my mind so i'm gonna tell you and then what you do with it is on you from there so come over at this time and it was a couple days later and i'll break this all down for you essentially so we go in and we go into a study and this is when i know things are getting serious because he only goes into a study when he's about to talk about some big things and he takes me into a study and he says First, let me tell you why we tend to be careful about who we pass this along to. Because America made the same covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Israel did. And every time Baal or Moloch shows up, that nation falls. And he says, I'm going to tell you what the ancient practices were. And then tell you about how it's being practiced today. And I said, whoa, slow down. You're telling me today people are worshiping Baal and Moloch. And he goes, and Ishtar. You can't forget about Ishtar. And I'm like, okay, whoever this is. So he starts telling me about how Israel fell into it during the times of lamentations in Jeremiah. Interestingly enough, that's the same time Lehi begins to be plucked out of Israel to, to make his journey to the new world. He said, what happened was is that there was a, a drought in the land. And rather than people stop and turn back to Jehovah and repent, they doubled down with these gods from Babylon and the Canaanites. And I was like, what do you mean double down? He said, well, what they would do is in a slight drought, right? They would turn a portion of their fields back feral as an offering. The next year, because they didn't turn back to Jehovah, the drought got worse. So they invoked Ishtar. And Ishtar was all about fertility rites. So uh, for anyone out there who's listening with little ears, I'm going to count down five seconds for you to either shut this off or get them out of the room. Five, four, three, two, one. It was basically ritualistic orgies. The only rule was, You couldn't be engaging in sexual impropriety with your husband or wife. It had to be somebody else. And that was, was the thrust of it. What happens when you have that kind of activity? You have unwanted pregnancies. And in a culture that values highly parentage and ancestors like Israel did genealogical lines right that was a big deal we'll fast forward about a year later and now it's a famine because you have turned part of your fields feral so you're not raising enough food to even get you through you've fractured the family now you have these unwanted pregnancies And who's there to take care of that? Moloch. And for anyone, if anyone wants to go Google this, go Google this. The picture of Moloch is a bull god. And that bull god has outstretched arms and a hole in his stomach. And they would feed fire into, they'd build a fire inside this hollow idol. And then they would put infants and toddlers in the arms and they'd roll in. And burn to death. Now at this point. I want to throw up. I'm so disgusted by this. But I still don't believe. What this rabbi is saying. That we're practicing this today. And he said. We are totally practicing this today. And I'm like how? And he's like. What's the big push with environmentalism? Turn as much of it back to nature as possible let's go into the free love movement if it feels good do it what does that re- what does that result in unwanted pregnancies what does that result in abortions he's like we're doing everything the same it's just been repackaged for modern consumption the maybe maybe now you're not "quote" giving that ground back to Baal, but maybe you're giving it back to Gaia, right, Mother Earth, in hopes that she will be appeased, and then we won't have droughts or fires or any of those other things, right?
1: Oh, I mean, the climate cold that it really—I mean—that yeah. is exactly what they're saying is yes, is this net zero, or the Earth is going to be destroyed and we're all gone. And yet, yes. ultimately, their primary message too is depopulation.
0: Yes. Yes. So depopulation. Cool. Feel if it feels good, do it. So now you have this whole free love kind of movement, right? And you have men not wanting to step up and take responsibility for what they did. You have extramarital affairs, ends in unwanted pregnancies, which leads to abortion. And maybe those priests no longer wear scarlet robes, but white lab coats or scrubs. And so when he painted me that picture, Justin. I was horrified and I went home and I don't classify them as dreams. I've, I classify them as visions. And that's another story we'll go into at another time. But there is no doubt in my mind that today we are practicing idolatry. We may not call them by their old names, but make no mistake about it. This is the same worship that weakens a nation that has made a covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and it's been repackaged for modern consumption. And I think when you talk about Easter, Christmas, and I love Christmas. I'm a Christmas kind of guy, right? Now, we, we've turned it on its head in our home. We, we make it very, very, very Christ-centered to the point that we've taken on a few of our own traditions to make it more Christ-centered. But when in dealing with these things, if we're not careful, right, because here's the thing, I don't think anybody on that side that's in the climate cult or practicing abortion or the free love thing, I don't think any of them, maybe a few of them, there's a few I might say, but I don't think many of them went in there going, oh, I'm going to go worship Baal and then Ishtar and then Moloch. I don't think that's how it works. So if they can fall in that trap, I don't think we should be too blind and too arrogant to say that we couldn't fall into that trap as well. And I think that's why this, this needs some attention here, right? Is if, you, if we're going to celebrate this, meaning the, the resurrection and the atonement of our Savior, we need to take it back. And we need to be forceful about how we do it within the walls of our own home and make sure that we instill that into our children.
1: Well said. Well said. I I agree wholeheartedly. You know, I grew up with these traditions, and like I said, I've got fond memories of them as as activities, as special days. But um, I personally, I I think I don't think it, you're a bad person just because you are participating in in the culture. I mean, that's that's why that's why they're subverting the culture. Yeah. But it might make you – you might be a little – but you might be ignorant of some things. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. But why, why settle for a pagan holiday when we have Christ's atonement and resurrection to be celebrating?
0: Right, right. That's, that's exactly right. And here's the other thing, right? And, and this is from the book of Dave. I'm not saying that this is, this is gospel at all. But if, if, if our father in heaven had certain angels that were captains of things, right? You can think of Gabriel. You can think of Raphael. You can think of you know, any of those other angels. What makes you think that the, the adversary wouldn't have his own? And I find it interesting that about the same time that Easter's around, Where one of the practices, here we go, we're going to go for two strikes on one episode. Um, We, in the celebration of a goddess whose priests would churn from men to women and women to men, we now have just instituted the Day of Visibility for the trans community. Those gods are still at work, and we need to be very vigilant to make sure that we we are not participating. We don't have to be we don't have to be overbearing about it. We just have to be deliberate. And when we decide to be deliberate, there's a lot of things we can take and reincorporate. And I'm all for using look, the children of Israel, they used gold that was out of Egypt to create the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the Golden Calf. So we can take those things and repurpose them and make them and consecrate them and make them gods. But that means that we as parents have to be deliberate in doing it.
1: Amen. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, I mean, even in my own family... I, I do have some positive memories around about Christmas and the kind of the Christmas feel and that culture is there. It doesn't seem to be actually it doesn't seem to be there. anymore. I don't know what I don't know what's happened to Christmas these days. It's not like it was when I was a kid. Um, It yeah. seems to be so much more commercialized, but I do still have these positive memories of the Christmas season. And I remember a couple of years ago, I kind of decided that, you know, I don't want to take that away but I also don't want Santa Claus and this kind of stuff to be the focus. Right. right. So what I ended up doing is, and I I felt like this was all right. Well, first of all, I don't, I personally, I I don't like telling my kids that, you know, this is, that there's some imaginary, you know, guy running around with presents and stuff. So, I mean, I just, just, I'm upfront. Right. That kind of thing myself. And that's how, we do things in my family, but we still celebrated Christmas in a more traditional cultural kind of way. And it's kind of hard then to try to take that away from the kids when that's kind of becomes an expectation. Right. And so what I ended up doing was, um, right out right after Christmas, you've got three Kings day. Yeah. And that's more of a, of a Catholic tradition. And that's not something that I'd ever celebrated. And I thought, wow, well, you've got, um, fertile ground here. It's a great concept and I can make anything I want out of this because, um, well, cause I'm not Catholic and there's no, no, there's no expectation and my family built around it. So we ended up doing this really, really cool countdown from Christmas to the, to the, uh, to three Kings day to ascension. Um, and, it was actually really powerful. We just took every single day. We had some special little thing that evening, like a mini family home evening talking about Christ leading yeah. up to that. And, and, and you know, it's kind of funny because in the restoration, you know, we know that Christ wasn't born on Christmas Eve. No, no, ways.
0: no, he wasn't. So
1: we don't need to, I guess we don't need to, to hold on to that specific date for that purpose i don't think no i was like you know what i'm good with the keeping christmas as my my memories of a traditional american christmas but i want to counter that and counterbalance that with something new something different that can be a lot more focused and intense on on christ and i think you know honestly i this year we kind of did something kind of similar we basically celebrated the traditional cultural easter um a week ago yeah because um because come sunday it's really it's christ's resurrection and it's atonement day it's 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 yeah it's not yom kippur (laughs) That's, that's in the fall but it really is it's the christian yom kippur right and and so we're not doing easter bunny and and eggs and stuff like that on on uh this coming sunday but you know we did have a semblance of it before but it was also i was you know i was clear with my kids you know we're doing this as as a as a as a cultural activity there's nothing symbolic here this isn't we're not worshiping false gods we're playing fun games because it's springtime and it's fun to play eggs i've got a bunch of chickens now and they're producing like two dozen eggs a day and how do you eat that many eggs you kind of got to do something with them
0: (laughs) right right no and i think it's important to to know that that this is going to look different from family to family and that's okay right but i guess i guess my main thrust is take it back repurpose it consecrate it and use it to the glory of god in some way period however you do that that's between you and god and your family but anyway dude this was a great talk
1: yeah i love it brother all
0: right well is there anything else you want to add before we wrapped up um i think we we we
1: covered a lot of ground
0: we did Um, it was a it was a good conversation justin
1: i i frankly think i could probably keep going and dig back into the atonement stuff for a while but you know frankly i i need to probably get some rest shouldn't stay up all night doing
0: right podcasts. yeah yeah no we, we both have families and jobs we gotta do so dude let's do it again before long all right awesome all right bye everybody You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.